these last three weeks, we have been uh, walking through a series on right relationships called uh, Better Together. And so in this last week, we thought as a church it would be important to speak on a type of relationship that sometimes is scary and sometimes we leave a little untouched, and that is singleness and friendship. Uh, Right off the bat, I am unmarried, but I am in a dating relationship. So in full disclosure, I'm not single, as it were, by our culture's definition of the word. Um, But like every single one of you, I've spent significant parts of my life single. Um, Shockingly, we've all been single at one point. Uh, And all that to say, that doesn't ultimately matter because I'm not going to be speaking of my own personal experience to give you all the wise tips that I have, Um, but more so we get to this morning walk through what the Bible tells us about what it is to be human and what it is to be uh, a single person. Uh, So if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, I hope somebody beside you does, I think we have some in the back, so if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and then Usher uh, will bring that to you. Uh, Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Uh, and if you don't know this, or maybe you've never opened a Bible before, there is a table of contents in the front. Maybe you've had a Bible a while and you still didn't know that, Um, so it's near the end of your Bible, so if you can turn there. Now, as you're turning there, uh, right off the top, I want you to know that this message is not just for people who are single here this morning, so those of you who are married and you're packing up your things, don't. This is for you as well. If we look at the scripture that we're reading this morning, and as an entire church, we're not pushed more towards Jesus, then we probably haven't done a good job of looking at his word. So uh, before we get started, I want to share a little story that is kind of a little bit embarrassing, but I had the opportunity to do some traveling uh, a couple of years ago where I went to England, and uh, for a portion of the time I went to Scotland and did a little bit of touring around there. It was a really great time. Uh, But while I was there, I was thinking about how my mom loves souvenirs. Uh, And the way that I typically travel is I, uh, this is probably the culture that I've been in, but I'm like, oh, I just want to pretend like I live there, so keep me as far away as possible from the souvenir shops. But I love my mom. I thought, you know what, she'd really appreciate to have something that reminds her of um, her son being in this different part of the world, so I thought, you know what? I'm going to go get a souvenir for my mom. Now, I'm not proud of this, but I was really concerned about people around me in Scotland where I knew literally no one. I was so worried about them looking at me and going, classic tourist. I saw one of these tourist shops and then saw a family that kind of looked like I could be part of that family. And then I pulled out my phone and just pretended to be the begrudging son who just followed them into this store. As I say, I'm not (laughs) proud of this. But I think what it illustrates to me, at least, or reminds me of is the fact that there was this status that I was so concerned about being the right type of tourist, being the right way, the right status of person. And yet inside of me, I knew what I wanted to do and what I wanted to do and what my desires pulled me towards and my worry about the status that I was achieving were two different things. Have you ever felt this way before? I think so. Like we all struggle with this feeling of, am I doing the right thing? Am I living my life the right way? The time is ticking by. What if I'm wasting it? 
I think that's a normal human experience. Uh, but I don't think it's a normal way that we should stay that way. So we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, and we're going to read from verses 25 through to 35. And we're going to talk about uh, what this means. Now, concerning the betrothed, those who are engaged, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Well, don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Well, don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as those who had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, and the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Father, teach us what this means. Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you would shine lights in areas of our hearts that we need light shone into. Lord, I pray that you'd comfort us and convict us. This is your word. Um, I pray that you'd use it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I understand this passage is confusing at first glance, or maybe it's just me that I find it a little confusing. There's a lot going on there, and uh, I was saying to Derwin earlier, I think we could probably do a full sermon series on this section alone. Uh, we're not going to do that this morning, uh, but we are going to look at a bit of it, and we're going to touch on what Paul, uh, who wrote this letter by God's instruction, what is he telling us about I just got my first pair of glasses, and to be completely honest, the prescription on them is so ridiculously tiny that some of you probably were like, those aren't glasses, Kevin. Um, but in any case, one of the first things that I've realized about wearing glasses is that your whole perspective and your whole world is affected by what's on the lenses. So if I grab these glasses like this, and all of you shudder. <laughs> Uh, my whole world now has the bonus feature of a fingerprint on everything. You all have a nice fingerprint on you now. And our perspective on the world, like our worldview, is influenced a lot by what's on our lenses. And what's on our lenses has a lot to do with what's happening in the world around us. So to look at this passage, it will be helpful, I think, for us to think about what is on the lenses of the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth, this letter that we wrote, is written to a church. It's a pretty interesting city with a lot of history, but there's two need-to-knows. One, Paul planted a church there. So there's a church in Corinth. And two, 
the church is heavily Roman influenced. It's in the Roman world, and so the Christians in this church are living in that situation. It means that they have a whole lot of different ideals. Uh, and the one that I want to talk a little bit about is that the people in the church got it into their heads that the physical world was good, and the spiritual world, or the physical world was not good, and the spiritual world was amazing. So everything should be really spiritual, and this, everything should be not physical at all. And I understand why they thought that. Uh, Jesus spoke about this new kingdom, about how he's in the process of bringing health and healing to the world. Uh, and so the Corinthians decided that as long as they were involved in anything physical, like sex, they were wasting their time because they're supposed to be spiritual people. This meant that married couples, they stopped sleeping together. It meant engaged people didn't know if they should actually go through with their wedding and get married. Uh, so in the church, singleness became the ideal. This is who you want to be, a single person. But for all of the wrong reasons. It was because they thought that Jesus' new kingdom was all spiritual, and that everything that they didn't do, everything that they did that wasn't spiritual, was off the table. It was a waste of time. Problem with this is that they're still physical. They're still in bodies. They still have physical desires. They're humans. And also, it's a misinterpretation of what Jesus was doing. He wasn't saying everything's now going to be spiritual. In fact, Jesus said, I'm going to enter in and become a physical human as well as being God, and we're going to create a kingdom that is physical and spiritual. And in fact, Jesus himself still abides in a new physical body. So there's this blend. We can't be this side or this side. Paul tells them earlier in this uh, passage, because they're trying to be so, they're so committed to being single. He says, you're burning up with lust, and you should probably just get married. <laughs> but you're holding off getting married because you think it's more spiritual to be single than married. And it's not. So, the church is separating the physical from the spiritual, and they're overemphasizing the spiritual. This is Corinth. They've got smudges on their lenses that say sex is just distracting us from our ultimate purpose. So let's forget about it. Signalness is the best. It would be pretty arrogant of us to assume that the Corinthians were the only ones with smudged glasses, right? Like it or not, we live in a culture that is saturated. It's saturated with sex and romance. And like, what's the message of every single song, movie, TV show, artwork, fashion, everything, or almost everything, that we're ultimately fulfilled by what? The physical things. I think more specifically in our day and age, that our identity is found in how we behave sexually. It's based on who you're attracted to, who you go to sleep with. And that is not ultimately who we are. And I think that perspective of humanity is off. You're so much more than that. And the Bible says that, which is so comforting. But like the Corinthian church, I think everything within the church walls, even within the church walls, we can still be wearing these cultural glasses and that are all smudged up by our culture. So even as the church, we are saturated in a society that says, what is the ultimate way you show your humanity? By expressing yourself how your desires feel, particularly 
with your sexual desires. That's what it means. Everything is physical. And in the church, we have different values around what it means to be a sexual human, but I think we value sex in some of the same ways that the culture does. Uh, and what I mean is I think sometimes we still follow the culture's lead and say, your identity does have something to do with who you sleep with, but in Christianity we say that that exists in marriage. But our culture says, this culture we swim in says, well, sexually that's how you're fulfilled. So we kind of meld those things and say, it's way better to be married because the way we fulfill ourselves is in the physical side of things, the spiritual, ah, it's the physical side of things. This is where we need to be. So our problem is ultimately the same, but we're just on two different sides. We're both wearing glasses, and Paul's like, neither of those are the right thing to do. And I think even though we might believe that in our minds, I don't know if we actually different. I think, now this is maybe controversial, I think sometimes we act as if single people aren't really fully human beings. Uh, I'm going to give some examples of what I mean by that and some things that we say. This is not because these are bad things to say, and I think most of the time they're received well. But just think about the message that we have and some of the language we use. When we find a person we're going to marry, we say, oh, I found my other half. I was a half person before I met this person. Or, you complete me. Again, these are not bad things. I'm not down on these, the, these metaphors, but what language is it saying? Uh, how many times have you been around a table and a great aunt says, oh, has Trevor got a girlfriend yet? Oh, that's too bad. He's such a nice young man. I think we often assume in the church that everyone is supposed to get married. Uh, now, for example, I do hope to get married, but during the time that I was single, I was asked genuinely hundreds of times whether I had met a girl yet. And out of all those times, I don't think there was a single time that somebody asked if I was hoping for a relationship. It's just kind of assumed. Uh, even the way we talk about sexual purity is, well, just Suppress that until you one day get married, because you're going to get married. So just as long as you can hold off till that day, that's the ultimate goal. Rather than how do we be holy sexual people in the midst of maybe never getting married. There's a book that I've been reading that talks about this lady named Paige Brown, uh, and she wrote an article called Singled Out, by God, Singled Out by God for Good. And she lists a couple of these things that we explain singleness away with in the church. We'll say things like, as soon as you're satisfied with God alone, then he'll bring someone into your life. Like we need to earn God's blessing and his blessing is marriage. Um, or you're too picky, as if God's like, well, you need to give me wider parameters to work with because you're just too picky about who you want. <laughs> or as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to God's work, as if we need to be emotional martyrs in order to follow God, and as if married people also aren't supposed to be wholly devoted to God's work. Or, before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful. As if, finally, when we look like Jesus, then his ultimate blessing is, now you can get married. Congratulations. Uh, beneath these statements, there's this idea that a single life is a state of deprivation 
for people who are not yet fully formed enough for marriage. So this uh, lady Brown, she says this, uh, kind of rephrasing what Paul says, and I think this is helpful. She says, I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I'm too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. So as a church, I think it's important that we're aware of these glasses that we're wearing and the negative effect it can have if we start trying to wipe the dirt off of someone else's face when it's actually the dirt on our own glasses. Whether you're single or whether you're married, the first thing I want you to know is that your status is valid. And God knows what's up. He knows why you are, how you are. And he isn't surprised by the fact that you're single or that you're married. And it's part of his plan. We don't need to play this anxious guessing game of, ah, ah, like, I'm single. Am I supposed to be married? Time's running out. I don't know if I'm going to live my full human life. We don't need to be a married person. Like, ah, I don't know if I should have gotten married. Look at all these single people, how much time they have. Uh, I don't know what to do. Maybe I shouldn't have been married at all. Paul says, I want to relieve you from this anxiety of stressing about which place I'm supposed to be. And I think a really comforting piece is this. Jesus himself lived his earthly life as the true and the ultimate human, the representative human, and he lived that life as a single man. So if our secret philosophy that we hold inside of us assumes that marriage is the only way to be human, we're denying the humanity of Jesus himself, which is a pretty important part of our faith. Now, an incredibly important thing is that we understand that it's neither physical nor spiritual, but we have to take off those lenses and God works. Both statuses are valid. Both are ways of being human. But that still leaves us with unmet desires, doesn't it? As a single person, doesn't matter why, if you're maybe somebody who really wants to get married, you're gifted. It's actually a spiritual gift to be single as well, Paul says otherwise. Uh, you might be widowed. You may be divorced. You might be engaged. You might be dating. No matter where you are, you have desires for intimacy and for closeness. And I'm not just talking about sexual desires. I'm talking about a whole range of longing, of feelings of emptiness that we all feel a little bit of. So we learned if you're currently single, that's God's current call on your life. That's what he knows that you're doing, and we're supposed to live accordingly. But what do we do with this loneliness? Is our desire for intimacy, is that wrong? I don't think so. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he would actually say it's revealing something deeper. Uh, He says that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So what are these more beautiful longings? What are we aching after? Uh, We won't go there, but you're welcome to. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, when God creates humans, he creates everything, and then he creates humans and says, 
this human reflects my image. This person is a reflector of God himself. And then he says, it's not good for man to be alone. Sometimes I think we say, uh, it's not good for men to be alone. That might be true. <laughs> but in this particular case, he's saying it's actually not good for a human to be alone. A human needs to be in community because we reflect God who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is always in community. We're designed to reflect him, to show love. So if we're designed to be in community, does it make sense that we have a longing to have intimate fellowship with each other, intimate community with people? Yeah. This is part of who we are, which just means that friendship uh, is massively important. But I want you to rest on that moment for just a second. This sense that you feel, man, I just wish I had somebody that I could have intimacy with. That's a good sense. Um, but we run into trouble because our cultural glasses say that the only way that we can have closeness and intimacy is sexually, because that's the water that we're swimming in, the glasses that we're wearing. It says that's the only way intimacy exists. And I think that's us sitting in this mud puddle, not knowing about the sea. So I think this is where we really press up against our culture and maybe our Christian subculture uh, and the way it views marriage and family. Now, I want to re-emphasize, marriage and family is so good. It's so good. This is not saying these are bad things, not at all. But sometimes because we're so pumped on this thing called marriage that we can end up focusing only on marriage. We can focus so much on marriage that when we're single, our friendships just turn into placeholders until we can finally start dating someone. And I get it. I get that it's really uncomfortable to be vulnerable with one another, uh, especially, I think, especially for a guy to a guy to share some deep things of the soul. I know, you see shudders already. Um, but then we can just view our marriage as a thing that once we finally get there, we have arrived. And then we can just drop off the face of the earth. Because my whole purpose was to meet this person and, well, I don't really need community anymore. Uh, now, I'm not married, and I understand there's a lot of work that goes into marriage and uh, a lot of joy that draws you into marriage. I get why you drop off the face of the earth. But I also have been in young adult ministry for like the better part of eight years, and I know that it can be easily, uh, it can be easy to become isolated right away. And it's also easy for your friends, particularly your single friends, to become isolated as a result of your isolation, and both aren't healthy. As a church, uh, as Jesus' representatives, I think this is an area we should really lean into. Because truly, if single people in our community, and there are single people in our community, shouldn't the church be the best place for a single person? Not because it's a great dating pool, <laughs> No, the church should be the best place to be a single person because they can come here and go, ah, I'm recognized as a human being fully reflecting the image of God in this community. We've already seen the world is not made or set up well for single people 
or not in our definition of a single person. The world says it's great to be single because then you can go around and mess, like, do all this physical stuff. But in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus who's a single person, the world is not a great place for that. So we could have done a full sermon on 1 Corinthians 7. We could probably also do one on friendship, but because you're probably interested in eating lunch at some point, uh, I just want to show you that the Bible has an incredibly high view of friendship. It means that just like singleness doesn't have a less uh, a lesser status than marriage, friendship is not a stand-in for marriage until marriage takes its place. They're very different relationships, but it's not a less important relationship. Married and single people need friendships. Proverbs, if you read any of Proverbs, littered with, littered in a positive way, I don't know, with perspectives of friendship and how important it is to be a friend. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's not always the case, but men, I think women have us beat when it comes to friendship. It's not always the case, but I think in terms of what it means to be open with another person, uh, I think I think in what I've seen, we're less good at it. Um, it's not a criticism, but just like, a, oh, maybe I should pay attention. Um, because we've got these smudged lenses that are all with this perspective that sex is the pinnacle of human existence, therefore intimacy only is experienced in sex, therefore I can't have intimacy because intimacy uh, has sexual connotations all around it. And therefore I can't have relational closeness with somebody I don't have physical closeness with. And that's just not true. That's the smudge on our glasses. And yeah, that's the smudge on our glasses. And I want us to look at this picture of the warrior king, David, and his friendship. Uh, so we're in the middle of the story. It's a great story, but we'll just jump right into it. And it says that as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then Jonathan made a covenant, a series of commitments to David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and he gave that to David and he gave him his armor and he gave him his sword and his bow and his belt. And these are all ways of them as friends saying to one another, I'm committed to you. I will support you, uh, and I love you, and I'm with you. I'm committed to you. Any time that I've talked with people about this type of friendship, this type of covenant-making, I'm committed to you type of friendship, I've not so far met a person who does not desire this. But the thing is, we desire it in secret because we don't want to let anybody else know that I need a friend because that's super vulnerable. So we all just sit hoping that somebody else is going to reach out and do that for us. Uh, for those who are single, uh, 
I would really encourage you that the longings of your heart, the anxieties that you feel about being lonely, those make sense. We're not supposed to be alone. But an unhealthy thing to do with that desire is to, in panic, run toward marriage for the sake of trying to quiet up that loneliness. By all means, it is good to get married, but right now, find friends with whom you can go deep long-term. Friends you are committed to like a sibling, maybe even stronger. And if you do end up meeting someone you plan to marry, they'll actually help support you in that. They'll help flourish your marriage, and your marriage will help flourish them. For those who are married, I would encourage you to keep your eyes open for the singles in our church. Chesterton says this beautifully when he talks about loneliness. He says, there are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. I would strongly encourage us as a church to be allies with each other and especially with our singles. In Corinth, the married people were being viewed as second-class citizens, and Paul would have none of it. Let's ensure that we're supportive and we'll have none of it when culture says that it would be crazy to be single. Because it does. It says it's crazy to just be single. Wesley Hill, uh, he has lived his life as a single man, and he says this. This is a message from singles to us as a church. I think it's precious. He says, we are hungry for more than just the possibility of standing shoulder to shoulder with others around a roaring fire, no matter how inviting its warmth. We are eager for our friends to say to us, I love you because you are mine, without leaving themselves an escape clause. What I and others like me are yearning for isn't just a weekly night out or a circle of people with whom to go on vacation we need something more. We need people who know what time our plane lands, who will worry about us when we don't show up at the time we said we would. We need people we can call and tell about that funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. We need the assurance that come hell or high water, a few people will stay with us, loving us in spite of our faults and caring for us when we're down. And we need people for whom we can care for. Tim Keller says that the deepest longings of our soul is to be fully known and fully loved. And marriage comes pretty close to that. But it's not the answer. And neither is friendship. There's no relationship that takes us to that place where we are fully known and fully loved, except for the one that we have with Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf and came and became our friend. The beautiful thing is that that desire that we have for not being alone, that love that we feel when we are in relationship with one another, these are all hints. They're letting us know that there is something better. These feelings, these longings, these joys are the smell of the ocean when we're fiddling around in our mud pit. They point out the beauty of the work that Jesus is already doing. Revelation 21 says that God is making all things new. And for those of us who trust in Jesus, we are told that he is currently making us new. And that is so exciting. 
So as a church, we're made up of single people and married people, and together we reflect who God is. And the, two, the church as itself would not survive without single and married people. We both do different things because marriage allows for a depth of intimacy that single people don't have access to. There's something about a lifelong husband-wife union that means that the deepest bond exists there within them. But singleness allows for a breadth of intimacy that married people just don't have access to. As single people, just simply the time that you have to pour into relationships and friendships, that doesn't exist for those who are married. So I struggle to remind you that neither of these, marriage or singleness, are better than one another. But just don't be anxious where you are. God has put you there for a purpose. And together we reflect him. All of our longings, our emptinesses, should drive us first into the arms of Jesus because he is the truest of friends. He is the dearest of comforts. It's because of his death and his resurrection that we get to not care anymore about our earthly status. Our earthly status doesn't matter anymore. Whether we're married or single, we are one of Jesus' people. And that is good. I want to finish, and we'll get the music team to come up. We heard from Paige Brown earlier, who is single, and she wrote that article way back in the beginning. Uh, but this is her conclusion in the article, and I think this is helpful for us to land on. Let's face it. Singleness is not an inherently inferior state of affairs. But I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple years because God is so good to me. Or I may never have another date because God is so good to me. And God is good. Let us not get into a place where we decide this is my goal and judging God's goodness on either side of whether he meets that. But trust that he is good. He loves you and where you are is there for a reason. So Father, we thank you that you have elevated us, that you have loved us, um, and that you've honored us enough to reflect your image. As we worship throughout this week, God, remind us of these things. Thank you for your friendship. I pray these things in Jesus' name.